you. Um, my name is Nick Bisley, Ooh, it's rather loud, um, and I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here at this wonderful occasion. Um, to begin, on behalf of La Trobe University, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm lucky I have a fairly simple role this evening. I have to do three things. First, I have to briefly explain the running order. Um, and it, events will play out roughly as follows. First, our keynote speaker, uh, the Honourable Peter Costello, uh, will speak for around 15 minutes and then formally launch the book with a toast. So if you are holding a glass, ensure that there is some liquid left in it that will last for at least 15 minutes or so. Um, then Jim Middleton uh, will chair, <coughs> excuse me, a panel discussion of the authors of the book. Uh, as you doubtless all know, Linda Jacobson, the founding director of China Matters, and Bates Gill are the two headline acts and the, uh, the authors. Linda uh, is the founding director of China Matters, and Bates is a professor at, uh, a professor at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. But we also have a special guest who's flown in uh, from Shanghai via Hong Kong, Brisbane, uh, and Sydney, uh, and he is in fact the author of the third chapter, Arthur Krober. Arthur is an economist, a China-based economist, who, like Linda, has spent the better part of two decades based in China. So we'll have um, an outstanding panel to discuss the issues raised in the book. My second task is to talk about the Trobe University Press. This year marks the 50th anniversary uh, of the first students enrolling at the Trobe University. And since 1967, La Trobe has been notable for many things, but among those, two stand out in my mind. The first is that La Trobe has sought to make accessible the life-changing opportunities of higher education to groups that had not previously had that chance. Second, we have sought to be a socially engaged university, focused on bringing our academic expertise to bear on the great issues of the day. In launching La Trobe University Press to mark that anniversary, we are animated by these same ambitions. The press will publish works that bring academic expertise and rigour on crucial issues to the widest possible audience. And I recall very clearly when the first proposals that were being considered for the press came across my desk for comment, and Linda and Bates's book leapt from the page. Both are among the world's foremost experts on China, and the book addresses one of, if not the most important issue in Australia's international policy. And we are thrilled that it is one of the very first cabs off the rank of the La Trobe University Press. The press itself is a collaboration between Black Inc. Uh, and which Black Inc. and La Trobe University, and it institutionalises a long but um, hitherto informal partnership that, is, that has existed between La Trobe uh, University academics and Black Inc. My final task is the one which is perhaps most straightforward and in some respects is potentially redundant, and that is to introduce Peter Costello to you all. Uh, Peter is the chairman of the Australian Future Fund and chairman of the Nine Entertainment Corporation, and prior to taking these appointments, he had a long and distinguished political career, most notably serving as the member for Higgins in the Australian Parliament between 1990 and 2009. During that time, he was Australia's longest-serving treasurer, holding the office from 1996 to 2007. Between 1994 and 2007, he was also the deputy leader of the Liberal Party. Peter's career represents a longevity and stability remarkable in its own right. But in the current context of Australian politics, it is especially striking. Peter, we're extremely pleased that you're able to join us and to help launch this outstanding work and help us in our 50th year relaunch the broader endeavour of the Trobe University Press. Peter, the floor is yours.
Well, thank you very much, and um, thank you for those kind words about my uh, longevity. Um, I intend for it to go for some time yet, uh, but it was uh, a great opportunity for me to be in government for uh, over 12 years, and I wish someone will take my record as the longest-serving treasurer in Australian history. I think it's a, probably quite safe at the moment, however. I made my first trip to China at a high level in 1997. It was my task to try and negotiate a licence for an Australian company to issue insurance products in that country. Uh, my interlocutor was the then Vice Premier of China, Zhu Rongji. Uh, as many others before me had uh, found, um, I found him to be witty, uh, urbane, highly intelligent and a very tough negotiator. But I came home with a licence. Over nearly 12 years uh, since then, Zhu Rongji went on to become Premier some months afterwards. I had the opportunity to know and to negotiate with uh, each of the Premiers and Presidents of China. Uh, it wasn't just in bilaterals that uh, we got to know China and the Chinese leadership uh, well, but we had an intense economic relationship uh, with China. Uh, we sat with China at APEC forums on an annual basis, uh, at G20 meetings, uh, which were meeting at that stage twice a year, but now four times a year. Uh, we were both members of the committee of the IMF, uh, together with uh, my Chinese interlocutors. We were governors of the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank. And Australia became a strong supporter of a proper and commensurate place for China in the international architecture. The international financial architecture was set up with the IMF and the World Bank in the aftermath of the Second World War, and even to this day largely reflects the various economic weightings of the countries as they stood at the end of the 1940s. Um, the way they stood at the end of the 1940s is not the way they stood at the beginning of the 2000s and it's not the way they stand today. Uh, and China is not recognised to the extent that it should be uh, in those international fora. Over the 20 years since that first negotiation I undertook in China, China has become Australia's largest export market. It has become Australia's largest source of imports. It has been the fastest growing area of foreign direct investment. The rise of China has changed Australia as it has changed the world. Most Australians instinctively know that. They may not know how, but they know it's a fact. They know that a mining boom is somehow related to China. They know that mining booms are good for Australia and the absence of mining booms are not so good for Australia. They know that Australian companies have done well exporting to China, but it's not just those exporting to China. Of course, Australian companies have done well importing from China. That's why we can buy clothes as cheaply as we can in our department stores. They know that Australian service companies have done well uh, competing for business as lawyers, 
or investment bankers uh, on, Australian, uh, on Chinese foreign direct investment into Australia. The business relationship has been an extremely successful one. And there are times when you will hear Australian business people say, the Chinese are just like us. They want to make money. So all we have to do is get governments out of the way and get on with the business of doing so. And just when you're thinking that China is just like us, and everybody's getting on very well, happily making money, something will happen to remind you that China is not just like us. In October of last year, the Australian businessman Jason O'Connor uh, was detained in the Shanghai Detention Centre. He was Crown Casino's VIP international executive. The charges are unclear, but whatever he was doing in China would not be considered a crime in Australia. When incidents like this happen, we are reminded again that the courts of China are not independent, nor are they open, nor are they like Australia. We're reminded of differences. Every time I go to China, I take my iPad with me and I surf through the internet sites that I look at in Australia, and it reminds me again that China is not like Australia. I can't get my Google. I can get my Australian newspapers, although up until quite recently you could not get Andrew Bolt's blog in China. A few, few of you would look at that here, I'm sure, but um, I used to check it every time I went to China and I would report back to Andrew whether or not he was still banned. Unhappily for him, he's no longer banned. Uh, and you can get his blog. He's losing his edge, um, as I reminded him, uh, up in China. Or a Senate independent like Corey Bernardi will give notice that he will move to disallow ratification of an extradition treaty and almost overnight the political consensus behind that ratification will disappear because of public concern over human rights. We're reminded again that China is not like Australia. Or Chinese interests will show an appetite for outback properties like the Kidman properties in South Australia. Few Australians would know of the Kidman properties. Even fewer would have ever visited them. And yet it will raise enough concern for such a bid to be ruled out not once but twice. Or a Chinese state-owned enterprise will show an interest in buying the network of electricity poles and wires in New South Wales. And Australian security agencies will raise concerns and the bid will be ruled out on the grounds that China is not like Australia. Uh, there are different reasons uh, which have influenced all of these decisions. Some are influenced by human rights concerns. Some are just populist anti-foreigners views. And there's another category, a smaller category, but a highly sophisticated one that will voice concerns about the territorial and strategic ambition of China. Sometimes when it comes to China, it seems Australia is torn between its economic interest and its strategic defence interest. Our economic partner may be China, but our defence partner is the United States. Now, China, of course, has its own view of itself. 
It sees itself as a great power which has been subject to unequal treaties and historical humiliation from which it is now emerging to reclaim its rightful place in the world. And it has every right to peacefully pursue its right to great power status. But then, as this book describes, it can use its economic power to advance other interests. It can use that power in a soft way. It can use it in a harder way. Incidentally, um, there's nothing unusual about this either. Australia does the same. Where we are an economic power, for example, in the South Pacific, we try to exercise our influence sometimes in soft ways and sometimes in hard ways. Uh, this is what countries do. Um, but I'm not sure that Australians are aware of the extent to which China can engage in this, in its relationship with Australia. Um, some years ago, I was part of an economic delegation to China, uh, which was all getting on famously well as we discussed business until the Chinese delegation persisted in raising over and over again the issue of the disputed Senkaku Daiyu Islands, controlled by Japan but claimed by China. The Australian business delegation wouldn't have had a clue where the Senkaku or Daiyu Islands were, much less cared. And they certainly weren't going to let it get in the way of selling one tonne of iron ore to China. They were truly happy to agree to any claim the Chinese made in relation to these islands in order to get on with the business of the delegation. In fact, one took me aside afterwards and confided to me that this was the problem they had with the Australian government. It wouldn't recognise China's legitimate interests, which were standing in the way of improving trade. Australian business has a very simple view of China. Agree to whatever diplomatic demands there are and get on with the business. Um, that's why they should read a book like this. Um, a book like this will tell them what some of those other issues are. Uh, will tell them uh, how the issues can be used and give them a much better grounding, a wider grounding in their relations with China. Now, the defence and security community has a very different view. They have the view that diplomatic demands have to be dealt with in a way that will discourage Chinese assertiveness. My point is that there is a bifurcation in Australia's views of China. There's the economic and the security. There's the business organisations and there's the professional diplomats. Sometimes you will see that replicated back to you on the Chinese side, where Chinese businessmen get on with the business of money. But in my experience, because of the nature of the Chinese society, Chinese business is much more attuned to government thinking than Australian business is attuned to Australian thinking. And they're prepared to pull their weight. It makes for amusing theatre to see Australian business floundering in its dealings with issues outside the area of, safe, of safety and conduct. Um, in more recent dialogues, um, the Chinese side have had full 
court presses on the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea, um, where Australian business is truly at sea. Um, the only group in my experience that's been less interested in principle and more interested in getting on with the business of making money out of the Chinese relationship is the universities. The universities will do anything to guarantee a flow of full fee-paying Chinese students into Australia and they don't intend to allow diplomatic issues to get in the way. Um, the bifurcation of views in relation to China is not good for Australia and it does affect our policy. Um, an example would be the, Australian, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Treasury and the Treasurer are certainly in favour of joining at the outset foreign affairs and the foreign affairs minister certainly opposed. Um, a very interesting example of where Australia split in two directions. Um, as it turned out, um, as others joined Australia's decision to stay outside that bank became untenable and we joined as a founding member but we joined late rather than early. So there are two groups in Australia who both think they know China but they know different Chinas. Business has got to get a lot better educated and a bit more clear-eyed about the Chinese political system. The defence and security establishment has to adjust to the fact that the global landscape of today is not the post-war order of the 1950s. It's not the early 2000s. This will not be a unipolar world. China has been a great power and it is entitled to be a great power in the future. Whilst we should encourage China to democratise and to tolerate more dissent, we should not kid ourselves to think we can impose a different social structure on China. We must deal with it as it is. And we should deal with it with our eyes open. Now, there's a lot of posturing going on at present. Some say we will have to choose between our economic interest and our security interest. Um, as if we have to choose between our doctor and our dentist. Um, the truth is we need both. If our doctor goes to war with our dentist, we might have to choose. But short of our doctor and our dentist going to war, uh, we need them both. Some say we can play a broker role between China and the US, that Australia can step in and resolve these great power tensions. That role might appeal to you if you are running for the job of UN Secretary General. <laughs> but for normal people, they will realise that China and the US can each represent themselves and deal with each other and manage their relationship without the intervention of third parties. Um, this is a good book because it puts both sides of the argument. We do not need to kowtow. We do not need 
to delude ourselves about China and the Chinese system any more than we would delude ourselves about the system of other countries. We can be realistic. And being realistic means that we can't reorder Chinese affairs. China trades with us because it's in their interest. And it's in our interests as well. We are doing each other a favour and we can work together. China has always been clear-eyed and long-termed about its national interest. So too should Australia be. So it's, uh, for me, um, a great opportunity uh, to be here tonight to launch this book, uh, China Matters, written by Batesgill and Linda Jacobson, and another chapter uh, contributed by Arthur Kroeber, who's, uh, who's also um, here uh, tonight. It's a good book. Um, it uh, does not fall naively on one side or the other of this most interesting discussion, a relationship will which will affect our country, uh, but, of course, uh, a country, China, which will affect the outcome of the world. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's launch tonight China Matters. Charge your glasses and let's toast the launch of China Matters, getting it right for Australia. To China Matters. Uh, we don't have uh, as much time as uh, we might have liked. This is a uh, terrific book, I should say, and comes at a particularly interesting juncture, uh, not only in geopolitical terms, the uncertainties of Trump, Xi Jinping coming to the end of his uh, first five-year term as uh, President of China, but also some fairly important current events, some of which uh, Peter alluded to and which undoubtedly we'll deal with uh, during the course of, uh, of this discussion. Uh, Linda, I thought I might uh, first of all pick up on something that uh, Peter Costello said about this bifurcation of views, as he put it, in Australia between business and the political community in general and the security community more particularly. Uh, the need for business to be better educated, more clear-eyed, as he put it. In your experience over years, is Australian business becoming uh, better educated, more clear-eyed? as sophisticated and more attuned to the political implications of the discussions they're entertaining, the investments they want to make and the circumstances in which they find themselves and what, uh, what uh, in a nutshell, uh, ought Australian policymakers and Australian business, businesses be doing to address this question? Uh, thank you, Jim. And before I answer the question, I. I uh, do want to take the opportunity to um, thank uh, both the publisher for this event and also Nick Bisley and Latrobe Asia for partnering with China Matters on this event. It's really wonderful. And of course, I want to thank Peter Costello for launching the book. Um, to go to the question and Peter's remarks, um, one of the reasons why China Matters, the public policy initiative, was founded was precisely um, this question of business being rather isolated from any discussions about security, um, and security um, either not respecting business, not knowing about business, or 
to be quite frank, the security establishment often just looks upon Australian business executives as naive. I've heard so many um, disparaging comments in Canberra about Australian business. So there is a need to bring these two segregated worlds together to discuss the tough issues on China. I think it's true what Peter said, the business executives need to understand China better, but so does the security establishment need to take into consideration um, that there's another world out there outside their little world. Um, and I think business needs to become much more involved in discussions about security. One of the things we put forward in this book is we mustn't think of China only as an economic partner of Australia and the United States only as a security partner. Australia needs both China and the United States for its economic prosperity and its security, both countries. I uh, should have said something uh, immediately at the beginning of this, which was to thank Peter Costello for um, launching this book. And I did note with some uh, wry amusement the, uh, the fact that he is Australia's longest serving treasurer. There were occasions, I know, when he would uh, quite readily have given up uh, that, uh, uh, that title for a, a different post, but it did not come to be. And he was a, he was a very, very fine treasurer indeed, and it was, um, it's a, it's a, it was a, a great compliment to this book that he should have been here to launch it. Uh, just on that question, Bates Gill, uh, and you do say uh, in some of the admonitions at the end of the book that Australia should reject the simplistic mindset that sees China only in economic terms and the United States only in security terms. Policy makers at this moment, uh, with the uncertainties we see particularly in relation to what Donald Trump may or may not do uh, as far as American policy in regards to China in particular and Asia more generally, what does that mean for, the adjust for adjustments that Australia needs to make in terms of policy in the immediate years ahead? Well, I, I think um, regardless of who's in the White House uh, at the moment, uh, I think the strategy, as we lay out here in the book, that idea that both China and the United States should be understood to be both an economic and a security partner to Australia, that shouldn't change for Australian uh, politicians and policymakers. That needs to be, I think, the way that we approach this problem. Um, now, that said, you know, we do have a lot of uncertainty and volatility and just a lot of unknowns because the way that President Trump has, has chosen to handle this presidency thus far, you know, 70 days or so, uh, has, risen, has raised a lot of questions, obviously, uh, a lot of distractions, a lot of internal issues that, uh, you know, sort of, I would assume, consume an enormous amount of energy uh, for his White House uh, and for his uh, leading advisors that have nothing to do whatsoever with Australia uh, or with the larger issues of the Asia-Pacific security dynamic. I question even whether uh, the reassurance tours of Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and uh, Jim Mattis, the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, you know, unfolded in a way that had any sort of imprimatur of a Donald Trump strategy or, or, or even an interagency process. Um, shocking to think. 
In a week's time, we understand, although neither government has officially announced it, but in a week's time, there's the expectation that the President of China and the President of the United States are going to meet in Palm Beach. That sort of a meeting normally energizes bureaucracies and drives interagency debates and bargaining and, and throw down fights about what America's policy and strategy is going to be and how it's going to get presented to this very important visitor. I ask, who's doing that? Where is the interagency process? Uh, what senior level, seasoned, experienced individuals on China, on the Asia Pacific, are a part of that process? And I can only come up with a big question mark. So short answer to your question, um, I think it's a good thing that they're meeting. Um, we should wait and see what happens to come out of it. In the meantime, for Australians, I would not adjust that basic fundamental policy and to the extent we can keep delivering that message to both our Chinese and uh, American uh, interlocutors. Uh, staying with this subject just, just for a moment, uh, in terms of what uh, benefits or costs there may be for China in the contradictions that are quite clearly there within uh, Trump's statements, at least, about China, the, the threats of tariffs, the threat of a trade war on the other mm -hmm. hand, scrapping uh, US involvement in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is, you would think on the face of it, something they would welcome. On the other hand, there's more military spending uh, promised, at least, on the part of the United States, but less mm -hmm. apparent interest in Asia on the part of uh, this US administration than uh, Barack Obama's. Uh, is this uh, a, a real opportunity for, uh, for China to assert itself more, uh, more, more strongly, both in economic terms and also in security terms as well? A absolutely. I don't want to talk too much about the Trump administration here, but I totally agree with you that it's been a range of flip-flops and reversals uh, from what the candidate... I'm, I'm asking where, where this, what this means for China in terms of opportunities right. and risks well, rather or, or than... Or what does it mean for Australia even? I mean, I think we've, well. cl we've, cl we've clearly seen uh, that uh, China's prepared to move into this breach, uh, to take greater advantage of what seems to be a lot of uh, indecision and uncertainty about American policy in this part of the world. Uh, and it was reflected very clearly, for example, with uh, Premier Li Keqiang's visit just last week, uh, trying to, I think, strongly encourage uh, Australian support for a participation in many of the uh, China-led initiatives for a trade, for investment uh, in, in this part of the world. And I think that's very much a reflection of the view and I think the reality uh, that at the moment there is no sort of alternative to pushing those um, initiatives forward than, than, than having the Chinese try and lead them. Arthur, uh, even before uh we got up here to talk, and, and even before Peter Costello very fine, uh, finally launched uh, this book, I was being asked by people about the, the standard question uh, lay people always ask about China, which is um, about its economic future, uh, the changing dynamics of its economy, and is this going to lead to a hard or soft landing? That's the one question you will always be asked now, the one thing we do know is that the components of the Chinese economy are changing fairly fast from the export-led era, which uh, 
which, which produced its great period of economic success and great economic benefit to Australia as well into one where consumption-driven factors are going to be more and more important. And yet, as this book notes, and I think the chapter in which you write, that uh, investment in uh, China, in uh, manufacturing, is far easier than in services, which you would imagine a more prosperous China would have a much, much greater thirst for, and certainly Australia has considerable expertise in. Uh, if China uh, is to uh, manage its prosperity and manage the desires and demands of its richer population, uh, does this, is this something that does need to change? And if it doesn't, does it enhance the risk that indeed as the economy transitions, the landing will be harder rather than softer? So I guess the first observation I, I would make is, is to, to pick up on um, uh, one of the, I think, very uh, useful, very simple but extremely useful comments that Peter Costello made, which is that it is very, very important to look at China realistically as it is and not project our, our fantasies onto it. And I think there's a very strong tendency among uh, observers of China from all fields to uh, not, not be sufficiently realistic. And what I would say in, in terms of the realism about Chinese economy is that there have been many uh, predictions of its its collapse, its crumbling, its slowdown, the contradiction between a Leninist political system and, uh, and a capitalist uh, economic system being unsustainable. All of these predictions have been wrong for as long as I've been in China, which is now over 30 years. And I think it's a pretty good bet that these predictions will continue to be wrong for uh, another decade or two, certainly long enough uh, that I think they should be disregarded um, or, or put in their place from a policy perspective. The most likely outcome for China over the next decade or two is that it will continue to grow at a fast rate. It will have stresses and problems and contradictions like any large economy, but the capacity of the leadership to deal with those stresses and respond flexibly to economic challenges is very well established. So I think that's point one. I think we have to assume that China is going to get bigger and stronger and more diverse economically. And that is a fact that just must be dealt with. But as you point out, uh, the nature of Chinese growth is clearly changing. We are already a few years into a transition that I think is, is like a 20 or a 25 year transition away from an investment uh, focused growth model that is largely uh, built on construction activity to one which is much more driven by consumer spending and services. Um, this presents a good opportunity if um, uh, China is willing to open up. And I think one of the big challenges of managing an economic relationship with China today is that uh, China is, is quite happy with a very asymmetric um, relationship with its trading and investment partners uh, because they believe they have a lot of leverage. And some of you probably know that President Xi Jinping made a trip to Davos in January essentially to, make, to send the message that now that the United States under Donald Trump is moving away from a championship of free trade and globalization, we, China, will take the lead in advocating these things. But what does free trade and free investment mean to the Chinese? If you look at their actions, what it mainly means is that their companies should be free to export 
to and invest in every other country in the world. And every other country should be willing to submit to very onerous restrictions on their ability to invest and sell into China. So there's a real contradiction there, I think, between the rhetorical stance that the Chinese leadership quite understandably is trying to present at the is moment. Is that any different from the behavior of any other superpower? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it is, it's extremely different. Uh, it is extremely different from that of the United States in a very mm. simple way. So one of the reasons that the United States has been able to exercise such effective global economic leadership over the last uh, particularly 45 years uh, is that it has been quite willing to run a very large trade deficit in perpetuity and effectively supply extra demand that everyone else uh, can, can grow off of. And China has made it very, very clear through their actions that they have not the slightest interest in taking that role. So there's a very specific way in which this is not just what all countries do. This is a specific type of action. And it's, you know, if this were South Korea, a, a small country, taking this position, no one would care. In fact, no one does care. That is, in fact, how South Korea runs its economy. Uh, and we all live with it because it's too small to matter. But China is now the world's second largest economy. And it has a, an obligation, I think, to be more proactive in contributing to global economic public goods than it has show, so far shown a willingness to. And, so, and I think, just to tie this off, I mean, I think this is where the conversation about bringing together the, the business and security uh, elements is very important. I think it would be quite destabilizing for the global economy to descend into a kind of a mercantilist warfare where everyone is trying to run a trade surplus. Um, and if, if China exercises global economic leadership because the U.S. has abandoned it, I think there's a real risk that that occurs. And that creates not only welfare problems, but it uh, increases the likelihood of those economic problems spilling over into political realms. So it's very, very important, I think, for all countries, including Australia, to try and engage the Chinese uh, government as much as possible in multilateral efforts to create uh, regional economic arrangements that truly are win-win and uh, in, uh, in, uh, involve a much higher degree of reciprocity uh, then the Chinese are likely to be willing to agree to if you simply uh, conduct um, negotiations on a bilateral basis where they always have better negotiating leverage. So does that mean, Arthur, that with the apparent demise of TPP, that Australian policymakers, politicians, leaders should be looking to RCEP, the, uh, an acronym whose... Uh, Regional Comprehensive the word, Economic always, Partnership. The one that always escapes me. Regional Comprehensive Economic, comprehensive economic Partnership. That's the one. Yeah. Only ASEAN could come up with uh, a, an acronym that is almost unusable. Um, but uh, <coughs> does that mean that, uh, that, that Australia needs to encourage genuine participation and genuine momentum as far as RCEP is concerned as really the only other... Uh, game in town? Well, I would, I mean, I'm not really an expert uh, or really qualified to make recommendations to Australia specifically, but yeah, I think that um, that RCEP is an important, it's a much lower standard agreement than TPP, uh, but it has much broader coverage, and it is genuinely multilateral, and the impetus for, from it actually came from ASEAN, not China, so I think on many levels it would be a, a very helpful 
um, uh, thing to get that through. Um, I th but I think uh, other things need to be considered as well. The Chinese counterpart to TPP is really the Belt and Road Program, which is much more a, a Chinese-driven engineering uh, a set of projects. And I think one challenge would be to figure out how best to engage with that in a way that it can be gradually nudged to be a more multilateral uh, type of enterprise. Uh, that would be a big challenge, but I think it's worth taking on. And then, frankly, I think the other thing is to, uh, and this may be uh, perhaps a little bit naive and idealistic, but um, try and keep the, the good elements of TPP alive in some way. I mean, maybe put it in a cryogenic locker somewhere and, and revive it when the um, uh, U.S. Uh, political dynamic has changed or take elements from it and try to incorporate that in RCEP or s successor agreements. There were a lot of elements of TPP that I think that would be quite useful and should not be abandoned simply because the agreement itself uh, proved unworkable. There will be an opportunity in a moment or two for some uh, questions from the audience before we uh, wrap this all up, but if I could come back to uh, Linda for a, a moment uh, and get to the person of Xi Jinping. Uh, it's not that long now before he will be presumably granted his um, traditional second term as uh, president of, five-year term as president of China. You write in the book and uh, uh, with the observation that he did and has centralised power with uh, surprising speed in China. He is clearly a different kettle of fish from Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin, the predecessors. But beyond the question of whether this centralising is an, it really portrays strength or weakness, one of the things I was struck at in your book is your accounts of uh, what ordinary Chinese think of him. And I wonder whether you could uh, elucidate to this broader audience a bit on the popular view in China uh, of Xi Jinping. Um, thanks, Jim. I think, uh, for one, the Western media likes to um, nearly uh, unanimously say that the anti-corruption campaign um, has made Xi Jinping very popular with the normal man of the street. I mean, you read it in any Western newspaper today. And I think that statement in itself comes with caveats. But before I answer the um, question directly, I'll just say that there are many kinds of opinions about Xi Jinping in China. Um, there's 1.3 billion opinions of Xi Jinping in China. China does not think with one mind or speak with one voice, even in policymaking issues. So that's terribly important to bear in mind. I think generally, um, I could generalize by saying they like the fact that he wants to make China wealthy and powerful. The China dream, according to Xi Jinping, is precisely that. So that, I think, really does resonate with both um, people who would like to see more transparency, accountability in the system, people who are worried about their jobs, people um, who would like more social justice and so on. That is very important. But then when we come to that question of anti-corruption, and it's obviously a very big part of the image that he has, that he's driven for a long time now, a very ferocious anti-corruption campaign, I think we have to remember that um, people are still cynical um, they ask, where's all this money gone, um, which they've been able to um, 
gather because they've implicated so many officials. What's happened to the money? Um, still, it's still the tip of the iceberg. Um, still, we're not going after the real people. There's a lot of cynicism in the system. Chinese people are very savvy about their own political system. That's, that's one point. But the other thing is, he's also implemented a whole range of measures which are not popular with the normal man of the street. The middle class, especially in China, they love their internet. And the Great Firewall is really a source of great dissatisfaction. Um, the fact that he's tightened control of the internet has made him very unpopular among younger people, uh, middle class people, sophisticated people who nowadays quite easily travel, they know the world. He's also clamped down on the Chinese media, he's clamped down on academics and their right to speak and write um, more freely. So I think it's a very mixed picture um, what really people in China think of him. Um, I do think they value the fact that he, he, he's moving towards that image of China as great and powerful and prosperous. And Bates, I just want to turn to you for a moment. And uh, uh, Linda did allude to it in this notion of justice, corruption, and the, uh, uh, and the standing of the authorities. But uh, Peter uh, mentioned these Crown executives who've been detained since uh, last October, I think it is. In recent days, we've seen the uh, UTS academic Feng Chengyi unable to uh, leave the country. Uh, we've also seen this uh, backbench revolt on all sides of politics in Australia about uh, the, uh, the extradition treaty long in the works back in the days when Peter Costello was part of, the, of, of John Howard's government. Uh, in short, this is a journalist question, were, were the backbenchers on both, all sides of politics, were they right uh, to say no, we do not need, Australia should not sign, ratify this extradition treaty now? Um, I, 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 uh, I found myself in agreement, actually, with, uh, with that point of view. And I think in the book, um, we lay out, not specifically on the extradition treaty, but we lay out, I think, a lot of reasons why uh, we would think that way, or at least I certainly would think that way. Um, because, I mean, at its, at its, at its most fundamental, um, we're still talking about a very opaque, uh, uh, non-independent and politically <clears throat> controlled judiciary. And, and even larger than the judiciary, we should just say the, the security state, uh, which includes the judiciary in China. Um, I hope it's true, and I think it is, it, it is uh, perhaps 95 to 98% true, that much of the good work that gets accomplished between the law enforcement agencies of our two countries uh, can continue. Uh, it is surely in China's interest to continue to have a productive and constructive uh, relationship with Australian law enforcement uh, agencies precisely because this may be one example, maybe there's a couple of others, but here's a great example of where Australia has leverage on China in this particular area. I'm not aware that the Australian government is particularly concerned about getting their hands on um, corrupt Australians who have chosen to flee to China. 
I, maybe there are some, but I suspect that's the case. Whereas the opposite is true for China. Uh, a lot of folks here in Australia, they would love to get their hands on. So this is an example where we have some leverage potentially. So to the degree that there is real crime going on and our law enforcement agencies should, can cooperate, they do. And they have in the absence of an extradition treaty. Um, so, you know, I think until and unless we can, I would hope that we could be a little more clear about exactly what uh, sending alleged, alleged criminals uh, over to China would mean, we should be, we should uh, continue to try and um, build that trust and confidence in other means. That's where I would land on this. Um, and I, I recognize that this may mean trouble, could mean trouble for those folks who are presently in detention. Again, that's a political decision. That's exactly who we're dealing with with the Chinese. If they take it out on folks uh, that are currently in detention for that reason alone, then they've shown their true colors once again, that this is a different country that we're dealing with. It is probably time now for some uh, questions from the audience. I, just while I'm waiting for a microphone to come to someone here, uh, the, the lady in the second row on the right, I do recall anecdotally uh, when uh, Borji Lai was about to get into, um, into trouble, the, the former strongman from uh, Chongqing, that uh, while rumours of his bad and unsavoury behaviour had been around, there was a, the general view in, among ordinary Chinese was, oh, of course he's guilty. But as soon as he was actually charged by the authorities, that was the moment at which ordinary Chinese started to have some doubts and think that he might, in fact, be innocent. Such was the standing uh, of, the, uh, of the people who were arresting him and the, uh, and the judiciary that was going to deal with him. Now, a uh, question here, Linda. Thank here. you, Jim. I've got a question in relation to Asian Chinese talent in this country in particular. But before I do that, I might just have a quick car passing comment on Peter Costello. I just realized from his speech he's a man of many talents, and I think he's wasted to be uh, the chairman for Future Fund. He should come back as, as foreign minister for another 13 years. So now my question is, um, Peter Costello mentioned he went to China in 1997 negotiate license. I actually bought a ticket to come here in Australia to study, and that was pretty much the onset of Australian education export facing overseas, in particular China market. So now I had um, 18 years in one of the major banks and doing really well. But one of the dilemma myself and even people out there facing right now is the Asian talent. There's about a million Asian or Chinese population living in this country. Jack Ma from Alibaba recently said the Australian company needs to tap into these talents in order to connect with China better. So to your point, Linda, in Canberra, the businesses or even our government still trying to get their head around this. How do you think Australian businesses or society itself rate the Chinese talents seriously? Laura, you're not alone in, uh, in thinking, by the way, that Peter might have left politics too soon. Um, now, do you... Peter, do you, do, you, do you have a comment there that you might like to... Or do you want to pass on to the... Not about that, not about that one. No, about law. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for the question. This is actually something that um, uh, Bates and I write about um, in several instances in the book. The fact that um, Australian society, Australian government, Australian business, Australian universities should all recognize what an amazing talent they have in Chinese Australians who live here. And, and in a much 
more comprehensive and deep way really tap into that talent um, and integrate that talent into whatever they're doing. So it's certainly something um, we have some suggestions for and, um, and, and recognize that it's, it's a missed opportunity. It does sometimes seem to me, I'll just pick up on, on Laura's point, that the dynamism in the business relationship between Australia and China, if you get beyond commodities and beyond a few traditional industries, is in fact being driven by the generation of Chinese Australians who came here post-89. That's where the, much of the enterprise, much of the uh, uh, agility, dare I say it, and innovation in terms of the relationship is going. Is, that, is there any validity in that? Oh, so you'd like me to pinpoint it to the post-89 um, newcomers? I mean, certainly it was in the 80s that the reform period took off. It was when so-called the energy of Chinese entrepreneurship um, was unleashed. Um, so, I mean, it coincides with a lot of things that were happening in China, and there was a wave of immigration post-89 um, into Australia. So could be. It's not something I have a... We, we, um, is this going to work? Yeah. Gonna work All right. <laughs> um, we, just very briefly here, we, we talk a lot in the book about um, we try to get people thinking about just what a strategic economic asset Australia is so fortunate to have in the form of international students generally, but of course in the form of Chinese international students in specific, who represent 30 to 35 percent or even more, depending on the state you're in, of the foreign students who have come to Australia in, in, each, in different states. Something like a fourth of Chinese students studying abroad in the world are here in Australia. That's remarkable. That just says what a great attractive place it is for those students. Uh, but we may also try to make the case that we're simply not fully appreciative enough of just what an amazing strategic economic asset this is for Australia and how much more needs to be done to make sure that that asset is nurtured and appreciated uh, whether they stay decide to stay in this country or go back home or go someplace else. Uh, uh, to be always remember that experience here and it would be down to the benefit of Australia over the long term. Paul, down, down the back uh, on the uh, right, second last row. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I guess my question is addressed primarily to Arthur, but I'd be interested in comment from uh, Indra Bates. You made the remark, Arthur, that uh, you would fully expect, given what's happened in the last 30 years, that China's growth would continue at a robust rate for, let's say, the next 20 years, uh, but that it's a different country. Now, um, there was talk about free trade. The reality is, unless I'm very much mistaken historically, that both Britain and the United States rose to be the workshop of the world as mercantilist states, not as free trade states. It was only after they reached ascendancy that they opened up their markets. And it took quite lively debates, and in the case of US, even you might say a world crisis to bring that about. What would it take in China for that kind of shift to occur, given that you've got this one-party state that's currently centralizing power even more? Yeah, that's a great question. Your observation is absolutely correct in terms of the, the historical um, uh, uh, positions of uh, the UK and the United States. <coughs> It's, uh, it's rather hard to envisage. Uh, uh, when I look at the, uh, the, the nature of Chinese economic policy, industrial policy, and add it all up, it seems very clear that what they, the model they have in mind is Germany. 
uh, which is a, China right now runs a current account surplus of about 2% of GDP. Germany runs a, a surplus of 8% of GDP um, uh, and is a very high-tech uh, uh, power that uh, is specializes in, in a lot of very advanced equipment and machinery and so forth. And all of Chinese industrial policy, it seems to me, is designed to turn to China into a country like Germany. The only problem is that its economy is more than four times the size of Germany's today and uh, will be much larger further down the road. And the world can support one Germany. Um, it's not clear to me that it can really support the equivalent of five to ten Germanys. Um, and I don't, I, I, I see very little in the, because uh, if you look at why does China have this, this perspective, I think there are a number of, of reasons for it, but part of it goes, I think, very back, uh, very deep back in uh, old Chinese conceptions of their place in the world and uh, the, the relative position of China and other economies which go back to the 18th century and before. This is not a communist invention. So I actually, I find it very, very difficult to imagine the circumstances under which in the current political arrangement China would choose to embrace uh, a, a genuinely more open, less mercantilist model. And in fact, if you look at the trajectory of the last 20 years, I think they're much more mercantilist now than they were back in the days when Zhu Rongji was running things. I think there was a, a real vision at that point that openness was good for its own sake and it would be good for China. And that perception, which was very strongly advocated for in the late 90s and early 2000s, has basically vanished from the discourse. So I think, again, in terms of dealing with China as it is, not as we hope it might be, I think we have to accept the reality that this is a country that seems very... Uh, uh, committed uh, and very effective in in pursuing a, a broadly mercantilist objective. There are some ways in which that can be highly beneficial to the rest of the world, but I think we have to be clear-eyed that 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 basic orientation is not going to change in in any time that we could possibly foresee. We do have time for one final question, maybe in the front row here. I was wondering, uh, so last year the um, most advanced artificial intelligence system, or sorry, the fastest supercomputer in the world was uh, a computer that was developed in China um, in terms of gene editing technologies. Um, the kind of the forefront of that is currently in China because they don't have to worry about as the large amount of regulation and things like this about in terms of ethical concerns about genetic engineering and things like that. Um, what do you think the um, kind of the technological... Um, advantage that, uh, the, the, what is the technological advantage that China has over other countries such as Australia or America which have kind of laws in regards to bio, uh, bioengineering and things like this uh, over kind of China which is far more uh, laissez-faire in their attitudes? We had a little difficulty hearing you. I believe what you oh, asked is, gosh, does, does the Chinese system, I suppose you mean social political system itself, have certain advantages for innovation, for advancement, you know, for its uh, technological advancement, yeah. as opposed to, say, the United States or Australia. I'll make a brief comment, but I, th I think I should hand it off to, to, to Linda, um, since she, actually, I remember one of the first projects I did with Linda was uh, a small book that uh, addressed precisely these sorts of questions. Uh, the quick answer is that uh, China has demonstrated, I think, a tremendous effectiveness at mobilizing resources of all kinds, including uh, intellectual resources. And so 
in areas where large-scale capital investments um, are useful and can help drive innovation, I think China has proven itself quite effective. Where innovation stems from uh, uh, networks and flows of information and sort of more, what you could say, free expression values, uh, I think the evidence is that they have fared much uh, less well. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that the Chinese government has to face as they try to change their economic model is that they've had an economic model that has been focused almost exclusively on mobilizing resources and they've done a terrific job at that. But as you move ahead to a more consumer-driven economy, you have to open things up and allow private knowledge networks to take the lead. And there are many ways in which governments can enable those networks uh, and support it but it, the government has to take, I think, a more recessive role. So some fields, China has been progressing very fast, will continue to do so. Uh, in others, uh, I think their uh, political system definitely retards uh, the advance of, of really innovative uh, uh, progress. Uh, the, the project, the book project that Arthur alludes to starts with the question, how does a country where stability, stability, stability is drummed into people's heads, that that's the most important value. How can then anyone um, excel and say, well, I'm going to challenge stability by having this um, scientific result or that scientific result? It's very difficult in a society where you're not supposed to challenge authority to make challenges in the scientific sphere. And as Arthur said, I think especially when real innovation is needed. It's, it's something that China is going to struggle with as long as they remain um, a one-party authoritarian state. There's a wonderful Chinese saying that um, if you're a nail that sticks out, you're gonna be hammered down. If the tree is too high, um, the wind will blow you down. Don't be different, don't stick out. So I do think that this is a real challenge for China because they've made it's very clear that they have great ambition in the field of science and technology. Um, and in, in certain fields, they are really making great strides. But the, the notion of always heeding authority, also in questions of associate professors becoming professors, um, getting funding, um, it all is very strictly controlled by the government. And that will be a problem going forward, I think. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Bates. And thank you, Arthur. In particular, thank you very much to Peter Costello for launching this very excellent book. As Peter said, it's not going to be a unipolar world. China is entitled to be a great power into the future. It will be. That has significant implications for Australia. And this excellent book provides some of the guidance about the way in which Australia ought to look forward to this reality. We'd better let this close because it's time now to sell a few books. I, I urge you all to get over there and, uh, and buy one. Thank you all very much for being here, but thank you in particular to Arthur, Bates, Linda, and especially to Peter Costello. Thank you very much. Thank you.